Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Are you reading the book, Understanding Behavioral Bias? Yeah, if you uh, aren't, then you can find a copy on Amazon. And if you've picked up a copy, if you feel so inspired, we'd appreciate it if you'd leave us a review. Uh, It helps us to uh, basically see what you think and uh, improve our process. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. Today, we are going to talk more about COVID-19 and specifically the psychological processes that uh, people have gone through and we've experienced ourselves uh, dating back to sort of early to mid-March when concerns in the United States began to flare up in a major way and then moving toward the present time, which is the end of May of 2020. It certainly has been a disruptive period, even for us in the Middle Models podcast. Uh, for the last several episodes, we had to actually record uh, remotely, and so the sound quality wasn't always great. Today, uh, we've had a slight modification. We're actually recording this in Dan's garage. So there might be a little bit of ambient noise in the background, but it, you know, perhaps it'll be interesting. We will warn you, we have a threat of some stormy weather coming. And on that note, we started with really a fear response. And I think this is worth pointing out. We've talked about fear being a major driver of human behavior um, in response to market crises. Uh, This is also the case with a pandemic, no question. And uh, whenever fear comes up, I always think of it acting in a a very punctate, short-lived way. Fear is to get us the hell out of there in a sense. And I always go back to the great uh, stress book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky. It's a classic stress uh, volume from the 1990s. And his point there is that uh, zebras and other life forms that are uh, prey animals that flee, uh, the stress response just gets them out of the way. They don't mull on it. They don't deliberate about it. They don't hold stress with them in a chronic fashion the way we do. So this is where human stress uh, starts to take over. And I I would say in March and into April, there was widespread stress. And uh, that also was exacerbated by job loss and uh, threats of the unknown uh, during that period. There's no question. And it's interesting. We could see uh, that that stress ultimately moved towards action, even uh, a very polarized uh, collection of, of political parties, the, the Democrats and the Republicans, managed to come together and structure a, uh, the, uh, the CARES Act, uh, which was absolutely huge. They had three different pieces of legislation which culminated in the CARES Act that were put in place to uh, actually provide some support for the economy. And given how divisive, we just finished you know, impeachment trials earlier in the year. Uh, it's pretty impressive what uh, a significant amount of fear and an imminent uh, threat to the economy can do to bring people together. Today, we thought we would review some of the timelines surrounding how we make sense of a pandemic. Yeah, at the very beginning, I, I think that there was uh, a bit of discounting that occurred when the threat started to uh, arise within China, uh, there were a lot of people that looked at it and 
said, oh, this is no different than the common flu. And of course, we'd seen SARS, we'd seen the bird flu, MERS, you know, we'd seen all of these various uh, threats come up that never really manifested themselves in a nationwide response. But then, at least for me personally, it became quite clear and I became quite concerned quite quickly when I saw the sporting events canceled around the March Madness and uh, the NBA. Right. So let's linger a bit on what January and February looked like. If, if we recall, there were a lot of cases in China and there was constant news coverage of the Chinese response, which was to lock down very carefully. There was a lot of concern that uh, it wouldn't be contained within China. And uh, the world wasn't quite ready to wake up to this, it felt like. It seemed like, well, it's a remote possibility. It's it's relegated to China. And in some sense, there was almost like a psychological inoculation against a virus because we've heard about this before. You know, those other instances of flus or other strains that didn't end up becoming as catastrophic as they might have been. In some sense, people probably discounted this because they felt like they had seen an analogy to other health threats before that didn't manifest. So for the purposes of this timeline, Really, where we start is the point where there's an acknowledgement of this threat. Right. And that that certainly was uh, around mid-March, I feel like, especially with the cancellation of the March Madness NCAA tournament, cancellation of sporting events en masse. In my neck of the woods, it was universities going to online classes in a, in a fairly emergency fashion, highly unusual stuff. You know, that would certainly get your attention. For me, uh, outside of the announcements uh, regarding the shutting of sporting events, uh, I remember very distinctly in my very last business trip, I met with Willie Walker, who is the CEO of Walker Dunlop, extremely exceptional manager. And I could tell he was visibly concerned about this issue, where many of the folks that I'd talked to before prior to this had discounted it as being you know, something that people were getting worked up over for no apparent reason. And Walker really displayed a genuine amount of concern and talked about the ramifications of what it could mean for the economy. And sure enough, you know, shortly thereafter, you could tell that the seriousness level rose uh, to a pretty extreme point. I think that's right. And the source of the information is really critical here. If it's a very trusted source, that moves us to action pretty quickly. And uh, a lot of fear ensued. Uh, fear is one of those responses that gets us the hell out of there really quickly. And it's very good at motivating behavior in a very quick way. So we talk a lot about our tribal hunter-gatherer ancestry and the fact that uh, many of our psychological and physiological responses are optimized for um, those up-close threats and how we move ourselves to action quickly with the threat subsiding. And so uh, the fear response occurred uh, as unknown unknown future events uh, would take hold. It was you know historical, these, these level of cancellation and national concern. Ultimately, point. fear feeds into stress. There we see elevated levels of cortisol. And then, of course, from our perspective, managing uh, the money at Saber Point, uh, we had to quickly reevaluate our exposure, particularly on the long side, to businesses that would have to be uh, ultimately shut. And the, the danger there when it comes to managing money is to overreacting 
to a event that may be transient, uh, which at the time, in the heat of the moment, uh, the degree of transience may be a lot harder to evaluate. Right. And, and stress is one of those cases where, again, it's stress helps you in the short term. It weakens your immune system. It, and it in some sense, rallies immediate forces within your physiology to respond quickly. Where stress becomes hugely troublesome is when it's chronic. So we see major health problems for people that have chronic stress, are undernourished, or are in um, situations where there's a, a threat of the unknown and it can come at any point. And the early point in the in the thinking with this virus was, you know, the shelter in place rules had never really been in place before in that manner. And so there was a lot of unknown uh, aspects. Also, industries began to struggle out of the gate, you know, certainly the airline industry, oil and gas, anything to do with travel, you know, huge, huge threats of layoffs industry changing moments. And so there were a lot of stressors that fueled that early response in March. How would you characterize the next stage, Dan? Well, I, I think there was a national sort of response from each country. And there was a lot of comparison among different countries. Um, in the U.S., which we can speak to most intimately, there, there was a lot of initial agreement around what would be appropriate. And there was a lot of communication nationally about uh, trying to shelter in place. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about the value of masks, washing of hands, guidelines of how to wash hands. And the term social distancing entered our vocabulary in a way that uh, it immediately spread. So when the threat was imminent and dire, uh, I think the uh, if you look at what happened with the politicians who had ha- are probably more polarized now uh, than they have been in decades, they came together and passed four different stimulus bills uh, in pretty short order of massive, unprecedented scope, trillions of dollars. And uh, they did so uh, in a very, very abbreviated period of time. And it's interesting that now, uh, since things seem to have stabilized, the curve has flattened, uh, at least at, at this point, uh, they've returned more to a partisan stance. It really is the power of tribalism in human life. And I think about this a lot with all of our social behavior and social responses. Um, there's an us versus them, right? And this goes back to just how you identify uh, within a group. We had gone from a, a very balkanized um, state where there would, you know, we had just uh, finished an impeachment hearing, uh, national interest was not cohesive. I mean, it was very uh, divided, maybe one of the most divided points in recent history, immediately shifts to a uh, redefinition of the us. So I think at that point, all nations started to retreat into the us was your own country. And that was very good for galvanizing national coherence and a national response early But just as powerful as tribalism was to bring us together quickly, I think we quickly uh, began to uh, re-enculturate into pre-existing allegiances. And that's where uh, divisions started to happen. So in April, I think there was a lot of uh, coherence around policies for work, trying to get society back in order. But there was also growing divisiveness about what 
should, what should we be doing when what's advisable? Right. And I guess ultimately uh, it has come back to a kind of a uh, red state, blue state mentality about the speed of opening up, the necessity, how important it is to uh, continue to maintain policies uh, that could come into conflict with uh, liberties that were previously enjoyed by citizens. Uh, you've definitely seen some backlash among some citizens uh, about not opening up. Uh, in Dallas, we had a, uh, a particular case where there was a hairstylist uh, who uh, went against the order to stay closed. And ultimately, she was, uh, uh, I believe she was arrested uh, and stood before a judge and she uh, refused to sign an apology uh, for, you know, basically uh, ignoring the uh, order. And the governor came in and granted her clemency. It was kind of a big statement uh, to uh, uh, embrace going to get your hair cut at this this place among certain groups. Gosh, and that that took place just a mere couple miles from where we're recording this episode right now. So it was close to home. And it was one of those instances of, uh, again, this sort of um, polarization where some people were horrified by the hate behavior. Others consider it heroism in, uh, in, in the, the quest for personal freedoms. So we did start to see that happening in April. And again, that that's stems from the stress response in a way. If you um, feel as if you have a group you're part of and you're all doing the same thing and on the same uh, page, that is um, comforting, right? So people sought that kind of comfort um, and reducing stress by um, sort of picking a team, which uh, of course is is ultimately destructive to national coherence. Yeah, and, and it's interesting Almost your beliefs associated with uh, the virus almost becomes a political issue uh, that uh, the way you approach the virus uh, and uh, whether you try to adhere to social distancing, wearing a mask, you know, avoiding going out in public when it's not necessary. Uh, some some people will view that uh, as being embracing someone eroding your civil liberties. Other people in uh, you know in the other other group uh, view that as uh, being patriotic you know going ahead and, and working together to try to defeat this uh, this virus and these are the rallying cries are around what we call core values or protected values those are those values that you hold so dear that you'll organize all your behaviors around those values and I think that's really what we saw so in May of 2020, I think people began to fill in gaps in their mental model of the virus using their own knowledge and their own intuition. And uh, this is particularly troublesome when it comes to viruses because so few of us have advanced biological training. Most people are operating with perhaps a high school level biology knowledge or maybe a single course in, in college. Um, very few people have advanced uh, research knowledge in how viruses are transmitted, how they work. And answers were not uh, forthcoming with this novel coronavirus right away. So when you don't have very obvious answers, and the virus is invisible, right? So, so we're left to imagine whether it's on our boxes that come in from Amazon. We're left to imagine, could it be on our shopping cart? 
could it be, you know, in in certain regions? And uh, that's where evidence-based decision-making starts to become hard to achieve uh, simply because we don't have enough knowledge. So I think all of those personal choices about should you wear a mask, the nature of social distancing that you're interested in participating in, whether, you know, how active you'll be in business somewhat becomes a personal choice because uh, we're all operating from our own version of reality. Another interesting uh, element to this that is uh, difficult because it crosses beyond uh, just scientific uh, analysis associated with the virus is the economic effects of trying to remedy the virus. Uh, there are absolutely are negative economic effects to un- uh, that are associated with unemployment, uh, that are associated with uh, uh, people having less, not being able to actually collect their their rent or to pay their rent, uh, to be able to uh, put food on the table, uh, to seek health care, things of that nature. When you're trying to uh, continue to you know keep the the economy closed, and there is a cost benefit analysis there that's that's very difficult for anyone, regardless of their level of understanding of biology or or economics to be able to marry the two together uh, and understand the true cost benefit analysis associated with opening up or not. Right. And it's historically unique. Uh, None of us have experienced a good analogy to this before. And uh, you're right. There are multiple concerns. It's not simply avoiding getting the virus. It's how to adapt your lifestyle in a sense to fit being safe personally and keeping family members safe and keeping the public safe while still getting on with life. So that that's something we saw emerge in this intuition period of May uh, is just people, um, again, reflecting their own uh, sacred values or protected values and trying to get back to some state of normalcy um, all the while avoiding the virus. I think an important thing to point out, though, is after a continued lack of the virus in your life. Like if you're fortunate enough to have not gotten it or, or not know anyone who, who had it, uh, who's very close to you, you can start to feel like it may not be as big of a deal and feelings of invulnerability start to take hold where it can be discounted once again, especially as the talk nationally moved to reopening and reopening feels like, oh, it must be over. Well, and I think it's also interesting to step back and think about what the objectives were uh, initially when we did shut. I don't think that the objectives were necessarily eradication of the of the virus. Uh, it was to flatten the curve uh, so that we wouldn't overwhelm our medical uh, facilities. Uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, I believe, have put together uh, thousands of incremental beds. Uh, to be able to deal with increased hospitalization associated with the disease, which right now we're not using. We don't, we don't need them. I think like the Washington Convention Center, for instance, is filled with, un, with empty beds right now. Uh, and uh, I guess there's also a danger that we become comfortable with uh, the progression of the disease and then we start losing this capacity and we're hit with a second wave. 
Right, right. So uh, that is an important point. Um, nationally, many countries move toward um, that exact process, try to flatten the curve, try to make sure that the healthcare workers are not overwhelmed. And that, that was the mission of the shutdown. That, that's correct. So that's another thing that's that's hard to grapple with with a pandemic is what uh, its time course is and, and what you're trying to achieve. Um, and it, it is probably important to keep that in mind that really flattening the curve was the goal. And uh, depending on the amount of news consumption you had, um, you may or may not have, have been as aware of that. Right. And it's an interesting dynamics associated with the politics of this. Uh, we can see that now they're talking about an incremental stimulus. I can tell you, at least from my evaluation of the economics, there will have to be an incremental stimulus. Ultimately, extended unemployment benefits, they, were, they will expire in July. Uh, we'll see the PPP uh, loans, uh, the period that they have uh, to cover those restaurants that are opening up. They will not be sufficient to be able to run at, you know, here in Texas, it's 25% occupancy that you're supposed to use for your restaurant. No restaurant can survive losing 75% of its customers. That's an excellent point. So some businesses are not reopening simply because it wouldn't be cost effective for them to try to operate at that capacity. And it's interesting you bring up percentages. I, I wanted to make a point that we have uh, discussed from time to time regarding good decision making. Um, it's often unproductive to think that life is a binary, like this will happen or it won't happen at all. And I think when we're in these grave, uncertain times, um, thinking in percentages is quite important. So how much risk is there? And you try to put a number to that risk level. You know, it can be uh, any off the wall number. It just gives you some sense of the entertaining the possibility of of multiple things happening in the future. So I think um, that way a lot. I mean, how can we be as uh, evidence-based as possible? If you think about the way uh, diagnosticians uh, talk when, when, they, when you're having a medical intervention, they'll, they'll give a percentage of a certain possibility. And I think there's a lot of value in, in that uh, sort of thinking, really doing a deep dive on what's likely and how likely is it in a fine-tuned way, and then try to calibrate your response in a uh, sort of multifaceted way to that problem. Certainly, particularly when you're thinking about all of these changes that have occurred, and of course, it, it really affects the investment landscape. If you act with absolute certainty, for one, it is, I'll, I'll go as far as to say, almost impossible to have absolute certainty about much of anything when it comes to the world of finance, because Everything that we're really doing in the short term is based off of others' perception with respect to pricing of securities, confidence, you know, and that can be very malleable over time. So thinking in percentages can keep you flexible and also keep you from overextending yourself. If you knew for certain that things would happen regardless of, of the return, assuming that there's some return that is a delta from where you are presently, then you would lever up, you would go and you would bet that that, that outcome is going to occur. And you, to the extent that you could borrow at a rate less than the return on the outcome, you would borrow as much as you possibly can. But of course, if you get it wrong, any number times zero is zero. And once you add leverage into the picture, 
uh, that means you're betting more than the equity, more than the money you actually have to put to work. And it's it's appealing to think in certainty. We, as a species, we like the person who's who was right and totally confident. They seem to be some kind of sage, right? Who who has immense uh, foreknowledge. That that's not really realistic, though. Um, I I think what you're advocating for is more of a long term way of thinking, playing a long game of just trying to. Um, accurately assess the situation with the caveats that there's other possible futures out there that, that we might experience. And I think that's relevant to the, the phrase reopening. You know, I, I think reopening has a bit of a binary feel to it, and it caused some polarization to occur where um, people say, well, they've reopened, meaning they think the virus is over, or they're remaining closed, meaning they're not going to do any business. And that that's a mischaracterization, but it's kind of an appealing one because we uh, like simple answers. Yes, we do. And now that things have progressed and we're getting to a point uh, where there is some dispersion based off of our values, based off of the perception of, uh, and, and we've got a, an election that is just on the horizon. Uh, there are political motivations on both sides on getting people back to work versus keeping people out of the workforce. Absolutely. These are such interesting times right now because of those political forces that were in place before the virus as well. Um, I wanted to just shift us um, toward the current times, uh, sort of May, June era, 2020. Um, some very positive developments are that I think good practices are being widely developed in terms of um, activity being limited to what's appropriate, um, wearing of masks and safety equipment, and just being aware of um, how one would reopen responsibly. That seems like it is occurring, and many businesses and institutions are developing guidelines to basically try to ensure that people remain safe and keep others safe. Um, society seems to be feeling some level of psychological relief because of this. We're starting to adapt to a a new state of normal, as they say, and uh, people probably have developed a lot of coping skills psychologically, among them good work skills. So I think we've never been more mobilized for virtual interactions as a society and business. You know, there's tremendous work from home capacity. Uh, and we're fortunate we, th this point in history, you know, we have the connectivity to achieve that sort of thing. And ultimately, I think that we'll come to learn to live with the virus regardless of the future outcome. Uh, if you think about the Blitz on London uh, when they were constantly being attacked by the Nazis during World War II, eventually it became a part of life that everybody became comfortable or at least aware and not as filled with fear and acting on intuition because it was a constant reality. Yeah, predictability emerges because we've we've got this this little... Uh, growing, um, you know, sort of bank of experience to go on. And we've probably also adopted a lot of skills that are helping us to uh, kind of reframe our thoughts on uh, what, what the, what's going on in these current times and, and build new, new skills and responses along the way. One ch continuing challenge, though, related to the, to the think in percentages plan is that numbers are actually hard to uh, find that are are not full of a lot of different caveats, like the number of cases per day is something I'm constantly looking at. However, you have to sort of take sort of take that with some level of realization that not all cases are reported, that some people are recovering, that there's you know a sliding 
sort of window of opportunity for this virus. So you're always kind of getting a snapshot of the present moment. And so um, it, it is, it's one of the challenges that remains in being evidence-based in, um, in this new frontier. Right. And also with that same issue arises with respect to deaths. If somebody dies and they hadn't been tested before and was related to coronavirus, they don't end up in that statistic. Right. And so the number of total cases going back to uh, the very beginning is not the most informative number because it's so cumulative, right? And it's sort of not necessarily diagnostic of the present time. Our response is a reflection of where we were beforehand, but much like the uh, divisive political scene uh, reemerged quickly. One thing that's great is, um, at least in the U.S., we have such a robust scientific community, um, you know, work on virus uh, prevention and characterizing this is is at an all time high. People mobilize right away to try to study this in hopes of generating a vaccine quickly. So there is tremendous work being done by healthcare workers as well as scientists to try to, uh, you know, we already had that infrastructure in place. And fortunately, it's remained pretty robust. Today, we've talked about the timeline of, of mental models in uh, response to COVID-19. Um, we talked about how fear and stress helped us early on to get mobilized and overcome the feeling of discounting the virus, which was going on early. You should sometimes be aware of intuition because while they, your intuition will guide decisions, um, you constantly have to keep a skeptical, open mind toward uh, the news and what's occurring and try to keep updating your model. Um, try to think in terms of probabilities rather than in binary outcomes um, and also paying attention to the numbers and trying to make sense of them, uh, whatever those numbers may be relevant to your business or your life or your health. Um, it's going to be an ongoing uh, project for us in the future. Yeah, I think that about wraps it up. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a job. Please subscribe and like Mental Models Podcast. The five-star book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making, is available through Amazon. This book will help you overcome the biases that are keeping you from investing success. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.